All right, I'm going to be reading the first seven verses. Lord willing, we'll get through them. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things which they make confident assertions. Lord, we ask that you would help to illuminate our minds and our understanding as we delve into this book of 1 Timothy, Lord, and Especially help us wrestle with the tough things that it has contained within it for our benefit, Lord. And our benefit really is that we would grow to know you and love you better. And so we ask that through the study of this word, it would not be an end in and of itself of gaining new information, but instead a helpful focus of our attention upon you. And so that even as we wrestle with difficult subjects and come away from certain things with uh, questions in our mind, that we would still be confident that you have all the answers and you are the Lord of all and we can trust you. And so, Lord, we pray to that end that you'd fill us with your spirit and be glorified as we study your word. In your name, amen. All right. Why study 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus? That's where we're going. These three books, and they're usually tagged on, Philemon's tagged on the end of it. It's just a little tiny, almost postcard of a letter. Um, And I don't know if we'll look at Philemon or not. Perhaps we will. But I'm definitely interested in going through 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. They're typically called the pastoral epistles. Epistle is a fancy word for letter that was written. And the pastoral nature is that they're written to individuals, Timothy and Titus. And these two men were pastors of churches. Timothy is in Ephesus, as we just read, and we'll get to Titus when we get to Titus. But here, why read this? If these letters are written to these two guys who are pastors of these churches, how do they benefit you? How do they benefit the person who comes and hears from the Word of God, wants to study the Scriptures and to 
grow in his grace and in the knowledge of him? You know, how do these practically help you? And I thought of a couple things. One is, first of all, and maybe the most important, since it's how he begins the epistle, is it gives us good doctrine. Now, (laughs) there's a lot of people who are not at all interested in doctrine. Whether it's good or bad, doctrine just, you know, I don't know if that's worth studying and worth getting into. Tell me what I need to do to get through the week, Pastor Pat. Tell me what I need to do in order to have my best life now, Pastor Pat. Tell me what I need to do in order to be a better me, Pastor Pat. I'm not interested in doctrine and theology and all that kind of stuff. Why is that the most important thing? Why is that where you start? Well, a couple things. One is if you want all of those things and you know the only place that you can get them is from God, then that is theology because theology is the study of God. And if God is the one who gives you what you need in order to get through this week and God is what you need in order to have your best life now or whatever any of the things that I said are, what you need and what you are doing is theology by definition. You can't escape theology. If you're in church and you talk about Jesus or think about God, that's theology, that's doctrine. And what we want, what behooves us as lovers of Jesus, is to have good doctrine, proper doctrine, right doctrine. And those things come from the study of the word of God. But specifically here in this letter, what we find is Paul lays out for Pastor Timothy, for Pastor Titus, here's how to teach good doctrine. Here's what to focus on. Here's what to avoid when it comes to theology and teaching and doctrine. And so for all of us, if that's what Paul was concerned about for Timothy to give to his people, it should be important for us, right? Me as Pastor Pat and you as listening to Pastor Pat. You see, this gives you good ground to stand on to determine if the things I'm saying are right or not. And if I deviate from the good word of God, if I deviate from sound doctrine, you need to boot me. You need to fire me. (laughs) You need to take me by the back of my collar and throw me down the steps. I mean, maybe don't really do that because I don't like pain. But if I were to all of a sudden come in here and start saying things like, you know, we all love Jesus, but one of the things that I've learned through my study is that he wasn't really a man. He was more like a spirit, which is one of the early heresies that came about in the church that First John specifically deals with. And a little glimmer of it might come up here in First Timothy. But if I were to say something like that, that is not good doctrine because if Jesus is not perfectly a man, 100% a man, then how can you be assured your sins are atoned for? How can you be sure you have right representation with God? How can Jesus be your mediator, which is the main focus of chapter 2, if he was not a perfect man? So, you see, if I were to come in here and start saying things that were 
not found in Scripture, that were not taught by the apostles, that came to me by some kind of vision or revelation or whatever kind of fancy mystical word I want to use. And you can look here and go, that's not what the Word of God says. You know what to do. Kick me out. Do it for your benefit and the benefit and the health of this church. Likewise, I am given the responsibility as the pastor. I'm going to say, first and foremost, and I hope I'm not overstating that. I don't think I am, but I'm willing to discuss it if you think I am. But I think first and foremost, my responsibility as a pastor, which I say every single Sunday just about, that you need to walk out of these doors knowing Jesus better and loving him more than you did when you came in, right? That's doctrine. My responsibility is to impart to you good doctrine because that's the basis for your relationship with Jesus Christ. So I think first and foremost, as a pastor, my responsibility isn't to put on a flashy show and tell you some cool stories and make you feel good about yourself. My responsibility is to preach good doctrine so that you know Jesus better, that you love him more, and your attention and focus is on him, not on me. Okay? Second thing why I think studying the pastoral epistles are important is that they promote holiness. One of the things that we're going to find as we study these particular epistles is that when error rises in the church... So does bad behavior. And what we want to do in terms of having a church that is healthy theologically is also healthy in terms of our practice. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to become a bunch of, uh, the phrase I've heard before is sin sniffers and be getting in everybody's business and looking for the sin and that kind of thing. That's the Holy Spirit's job. And he does a great job of it, right? But what we certainly want to do is we want to, in a formative way, practice holiness. It's like, you know, I used to run. You can maybe tell I don't write recently, but I haven't run in a little while. But I used to run a lot. And I used to run and I, you know, ran races. I even ran a race with Faith one time. She doesn't want to remember that, but I did. And I, I love to do it. But it was discipline and it was formative discipline that got me to the place where I could run competitively. And I could get out there and do what I needed to do. It was hard, but I had to discipline myself. I had to focus my mind and I had to do it. Now, I liked doing it at least afterwards and kind of before. But in the middle of it, man, sometimes it was a slog. And it was hard and I, if I, I, you know, it was difficult to do and painful, downright painful sometimes. And frankly, sometimes formative holiness within the church is like that. We like it. We want to. We want to love Jesus more and we want to become more like him. We do. All of us do. Sometimes the thought of that motivates us to start trying to kill certain sins in our lives and attack and battle certain things. And sometimes it gets downright painful and difficult. And the Lord maybe doesn't take that thing away right in the moment where we would like him to. And so we continue to fight that fight, right? But this book here, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy and Titus, all because of their pastoral emphasis, 
Encourage us on in the life of holiness. Encourage us on in the life where we are trying to become more like Christ. Because we want to be like him. Because one day we're going to see him as he is. A third thing, and this is a minor thing in light of the first two things that I brought up. Is that it actually gives us a good foundation for our confession of faith. I've heard so many people say, I got no confession but Christ. No confession but Christ. That's nice and good and helpful. When I ask, well, what about Christ? And you start to talk about Jesus, you're giving me a confession of faith. Now, we have a lengthy confession of faith in the back of our hymnal, 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. But the reason why this gives us a good foundation is we find as Paul begins to teach Peter, pardon me, Timothy, on his pastoral duties, one of the things he does is tells them to teach summary little things. Here, let me show you one here. Turn the page to chapter 3. Maybe you didn't have to turn the page in your Bible. Shouldn't assume that. But chapter 3, verse 16 Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness, right? Here is a confession. It's right there in the verse. And you have this tiny little saying that was probably easily memorizable so that, you know, you can say Christ was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up to glory. That's a good comprehensive yet pithy little saying about Jesus, right? That way you don't have to quote the entirety of the Gospel of John when somebody asks you about Jesus. Not that that's a bad thing. But sometimes you're in an elevator and you don't have 21 chapters worth of time to talk about something. So here you have a confession of faith. So it gives, us a, it gives us a foundation for our confession of faith. Well, there's more and more and more that I could go into. But these are three things that just come to the top of my mind or why these epistles are important for you to study as well as me. But Timothy, who's this guy, Timothy? Well, look back in the book of Acts, first of all. Go to chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Pardon me, 14. Acts chapter 14. Right in the middle of the chapter 14 is this story of Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journey and they get to the town of Lystra. And there in the town of Lystra, there's a man who's crippled. And Paul, Barnabas, filled with the Holy Spirit, are compelled to heal this man. Of course, through the power of the Holy Spirit, this man is healed. His legs are restored. He gets up and he jumps and leaps and runs around. And the people in Lystra are amazed. And these people in Lystra, they begin to call Paul a god and Barnabas a god. And they call them gods and begin to worship them. And Paul says, don't do this. We are men just like you. We are not gods. 
We want you to worship the true and living God. And while this thing is breaking out, the Judaizers who had been following Paul around, right? They're like healing the thorn of everybody in the New Testament, it seems like, these guys. Jimmy Cricket. Well, they show up and they cause all kinds of problems. Look at verse 19. Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and persuaded the crowds. And they stoned Paul and drug him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Okay, this is no small event. This is crazy. (laughs) They come into town, heal a guy. The whole town goes nuts. Crazy go nuts. To to the point where they're going to worship Paul and Barnabas. And when they do that, these Judaizers come in, and I have no idea what they say or how they got so persuasive, but apparently they're very compelling. (laughs) And they compelled the crowd that Paul and Barnabas were charlatans of some way, shape, or form. And so they took the crowd that just wanted to worship Paul, And in their frenzy got them to think that Paul was a false prophet. And so they killed him, stoned him. Whether he died here or not, we don't know. I kind of think he did based upon 2 Corinthians. But that's that's a way whole nother sermon. Anyways, so they drag him out of town. Now, this is an event that everybody's going to be aware of and everybody's going to remember, Right? Paul gets up, he goes back into town and spends the night there. (laughs) That's almost as much as a miracle as him rising from the dead, I kind of think. But the next day he leaves, and we don't hear from Lystra again until we get to chapter 16. Chapter 16. Verse 1 of chapter 16. So Paul came to Derby and, dun-da-da-da, Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, so he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them... They delivered to them observance, the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders from chapter 15 in Jerusalem. So this is the introduction of Timothy into the Bible, into the history of the church. He's a young guy. His mother's Jewish. His father was Greek, so he was uncircumcised. He hadn't Um, followed the law, but we know from 2 Timothy, which we'll get to in a few months, maybe Lord willing, that his grandmother and his mother had taught him the scriptures from his youth. And so when Paul came to town and preached Jesus Christ, he was already prepared for the teaching that Jesus was the Messiah because he was steeped in the Old Testament. But he hadn't followed the rituals and he hadn't followed all the old covenant ways of doing things. And at this kind of tipping point in the church, there's this question of circumcision. 
Now, chapter 15 has already happened, and we know that from chapter 15 of the book of Acts, that the early church decided you don't have to be circumcised in order to be a Christian. You don't have to be. But yet here, immediately after chapter 15, we find Paul doing the very thing that the church council said you don't have to do. Why? It's important, especially for uh, the looking at 1 Timothy later on down the road, in light of who he's dealing with. It's almost prescient of Paul. He had him circumcised because his mother was Jewish, and according to Jewish customs and traditions, that went through the lineage of the mother. And so, even though his father was Greek, he had him circumcised, basically giving him a platform to speak that he didn't have before. Namely, that he could speak with authority to a Jewish audience that he wouldn't have been able to otherwise. So here, Paul, by doing this one action, which to us is kind of, I mean, we read that and we go, gee whiz, he was what, like a teenager? That's kind of barbaric. That's, that's intense. <laughs> and that Timothy would go through with it. But you see, it wasn't about the ritual. It frankly had nothing to do with the cutting away of skin. It had to do with the platform that it gave him and his ability to go places and say things and speak the gospel to a people that he couldn't have otherwise. People that Silas couldn't have spoken to, otherwise Paul would have had Silas circumcised, and he didn't. But Timothy had a different advantage, providentially by the hand of God, and so he's given this, shall we say, Interesting token of circumcision. (laughs) It's important because one of the things that we find that we actually just read, so turn back to 1 Timothy if you're in the book of Acts. If you're in 1 Timothy now, it says in verse 4, they devote themselves to myth and endless genealogies. Now these are two in the very, 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 very early church characteristic problems that the Judaizers brought into churches. These are two characteristically Jewish errors that the Judaizers brought into churches. Myths and genealogies. Myths. If you... There's books that are written upon books that were written upon books that were written. It's like commentaries of commentaries of commentaries of the Old Testament. And you hear these words thrown around. Sometimes in certain circles, and I'm not going to bother with them here tonight because the titles are irrelevant. But what these commentaries upon commentaries upon commentaries often did is they would take tiny little fragments out of the Old Testament, little bits tiny little pieces of information, and they would extrapolate upon them. And these rabbis would read into these stories and create other stories based upon the stories that they read in the Old Testament. Then somebody would come along a generation or two later and adapt on to that, add on to that. 
And so oftentimes in these Jewish ancient literatures, you have stories that are way extrapolated out from the very original and have no bearing in reality at all in any way, shape, or form. But because of the way that they were transcribed, they were revered. And so a lot of people put more weight into what these writings said oftentimes than what the actual scripture said. We don't make any mistake. We have similar myths and fables in our day. We have an entire Church of the Latter-day Saints that is a book, and then books upon the book, and then books upon the book of fables and myths that have been written about Jesus supposedly coming to a group of people that lived here in North America and giving them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Of course, we have no evidence archaeologically of any of these people even existing, but yet here you have an entire supposed branch of Christianity based upon myths and based upon fables. So don't think it's odd that they did it. We still have it in our day and age as well. Genealogies. Jesus himself, remember, he said, you guys think that you're so special because you're children of Abraham, but God can raise up from these very stones children of Abraham. You see, they were relying upon their genealogies. They were relying upon their clear, direct Jewish heritage for their identification with God. I'm right with God because my great, 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 whoever in Mako was Levi. Or my great, 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 great person of old was Asher or Dan or any of those 12 tribes, right? They relied upon their genealogies. And they were very proud of their genealogies to the point where you find a little bit of disdain coming upon some of the Jews returning from the exile who couldn't prove their genealogical heritage. And by the time we get to this here, by the time we get to Paul writing to Timothy, he says, put that down. Don't let that even infiltrate the church. No myths, no genealogies. They are not to be relied upon. They're not to be given quarter, not even for a minute. Look, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia to remain in Ephesus so that you may. Here's his singular goal. Well, his major goal. There's lots of other goals. But this singular goal of charging certain persons not to teach different doctrines. These persons were devoting themselves to myths, endless genealogies, which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. What is this stewardship from God? Well, Paul doesn't leave it a mystery. He actually talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. First Corinthians chapter four. This is how one should regard us. Okay? He's writing to this Corinthian church, 
And he's writing to them. Remember, in Corinth, they are questioning Paul's authority and his credentials. And he says, here's how you should regard me. As servants of Christ, slaves to Christ, and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges. Therefore, don't pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and disclose the purposes of the heart of God. Each one will receive his condemnation, commendation, pardon me, from the Lord. Paul here is he's talking about his giving of the gospel to the church. He says, I am a slave to Christ. I am bound to him. I am his servant. And my duty that has been given to me by my master is to steward the mysteries of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. This appears earlier in the book of 1 Corinthians. It appears in the book of Ephesians. It appears in the book of Colossians. This same phraseology of the mysteries of God. Mystery just means something that has been revealed now in the New Testament area that was concealed in the old. Remember the whole hugging on shadows thing I talked about last week? It's that kind of thing. It's revealed now. The mysteries of God is the gospel. And he says, here's how you should regard me. I am a slave to God, and my duty is to steward the gospel of Jesus Christ. Take care of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Use it appropriately to give it out in the manner for which God would, if he were the one standing here right now, That's how I'm to deal with the mysteries of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul, in writing to Timothy, says that that's what he is there to do as well. These men have fallen away. They have diverted themselves. They're distracted from these things. But we, our aim is to steward the faith that God has given us. Now, back in verse 1, Paul says that he's apostle by Jesus Christ, by the command of God our Savior and Jesus Christ our Lord. Does that bother anybody that God commands? I've heard it said so many times. You know, God's a gentleman. He won't force himself into your life. The Holy Spirit's a gentleman. He he doesn't force himself upon you. He is God Almighty. He commands. He is King of King and Lord of Lords. He is not gentleman, meek, and mild. (laughs) He is God with all authority, all might, and all honor is due his name. You exist because he has allowed you to exist. He gives commands and he calls whom he calls. He raises up whom he raises up and puts down whom he puts down. He is God Almighty. He commands. He has every right to do so. And it should not strike us as odd or uncomfortable when we read about the fact that God commands things of his people. 
He does, and he commands things of me, and he commands things of you. And beloved, if God created us, and he fit us, and he shaped us, and he has made us in this fearful, wonderful, delightful, bizarre sometimes, but glorious way that we are as human beings, and he commands us to do something, you can be sure it's for your best good as well as his greatest glory. And so therefore, when we come across a phrase like this, even though I have read in a a commentary just the other day, good night, I want to kick this guy, he's dead, but don't want to kick a dead guy, I guess. But he balked at this. He had a problem with this. That God would command something of his people. Oh, we couldn't have meant command because the thing and the deal and the parsing of the thing and the hooter and what? No! God is God and we are not. He's the one with all authority and all might. He has given to me as pastor a stewardship of his word and I dare not deviate from it, beloved. I have one singular purpose and that's to preach this book to you and pray for your souls. That's what we're going to find as we study 1 Timothy. That's the deal. That's the job. That's the responsibility. That's the command of God to the pastor. I'm to give to you the word of God and pray for your souls and pray for you. Pray for your life. Pray for your family. Pray for you. Preach to you the word of God. And I do it over and over and over and over again. And listen, this charge does not come from anything other than love. Do you see that there? Verse 5. Let's read verse 5. The aim of our charge is love. Love. Do you know? I deliberately use the phrase when I speak to you, beloved. I don't know if you've ever thought about me using that particular word when I say, beloved, beloved, in the middle of my sermons, but it is very deliberate. It's tactical. Because I want to communicate to you every single time that I use that word, you are loved both by God and by me. Let's be honest, by God, a way, way, way lot more. (laughs) I mean, I'm going to do my best, (laughs) but I'm still partially sanctified at best. Thank God for grace. But that's not what we're talking about here. Preach the text, Pat. Love, 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 love. You are beloved by me, but ultimately by the Lord. And the only reason... (laughs) A major reason why I do what I do is because I love God so much. I love Jesus so much for what he's done for me. But I love you. I love each and every one of you. I love everybody who's come to this church. Some people have left and it breaks my heart and grieves me. And I might have a hard time if they walk in just interpersonally and my stupid emotions getting in the way. But you know what the truth of the matter is? I still love those people. I still love them, and I wish that I could still impart what we're about to see here. The charge, pardon me, the aim of my charge is love. It issues from three things. One, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. A pure heart, 
You remember in Matthew, in the Beatitudes, what is it? Five, eight? Let me look. I don't want to get it wrong. I think it's five, eight. Come on, fat fingers. Yeah. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. When we read, when Joel read, I should say, the call to worship, it says this. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Repentance is a good and glorious action by the Christian. We should be people of repentance. A pure heart is a confessing heart. A pure heart is a repentant heart. A pure heart is a broken heart, broken over our sin. And we come to Christ in repentance. We come to him believing that when we pray this prayer, create in me a clean heart, O God, that he actually does that. The reason the pure in heart can see God is because only those who are pure will behold that vision of God, right? First John chapter 3. What kind of crazy love is this that we should be called the children of God? We don't know what we will be like, but we do know this. We know that when we see him, we'll be like him even as he is. That can only be true if we have pure hearts. And pure hearts come from forgiveness and repentance. Well, repentance first. Repentance, then forgiveness. So we come to the Lord. The aim of my charge in preaching the gospel to you and being a steward of the gospel to you is love that issues from this repenting heart. This heart that confesses sin. This heart that is grieved over the things I have done and am doing. And I don't even understand my own heart, right? Like Jeremiah says, or or whoever said it. I can't think off the top of my head now. But my heart is desperately wicked. I don't even know it. But God is a gracious God who gives me this clean, pure heart when I come to him in repentance. It is a good thing to repent. So my aim, the reason why I can be somebody who is interested in maintaining the sound doctrine within the church, it comes forth not out of a desire to be pompous and right and tick my theological boxes. It's out of love that comes from a repenting heart, a heart that is broken over my own sin. And secondly, a good conscience. If somebody just the other week accused me of something, and it was hard to hear. When, when that happens, when somebody either writes me a letter or text or comes to me and has some kind of issue, you know, I, I want to be honest in that my very first reaction is I say, hmm, is there any truth into what they're saying? But it's not, is it? The very first thing is to get defensive. But usually now over the years, maybe the second thing that I do is go, wait a second, Pat, slow down. You know yourself well enough to know there might be truth here. And this person said this one thing to me and we went back and forth and talked a little bit. And at the end of that, I could, I could honestly tell them, you know what, my conscience is clear in this. 
My conscience is good in this, right? My conscience is something within me that acts upon both the word of God that's within me as the Holy Spirit works within me. And it's the one that either produces guilt or produces that conviction that I am right, that I am okay, that this is a good thing to pursue, Right? It's like what we might call a moral compass. That's a, maybe a modern euphemism for conscience. As we study the word of God more and more, our consciences, our moral compass becomes more acute, more sensitive, more discerning in certain things. And so things now that might convict my conscience maybe didn't before. But you see, when it comes to the word of God, what I'm doing is I'm giving you the gospel of Jesus Christ, the mysteries of God that I'm commanded to be a steward of. And I give these to you. My aim is love that issues from a repenting, pure heart, and is my conscience clear in the things that I say? When I say things, am I confident this is what the word of God says? Is my conscience clear that if Christ were standing here preaching this to you as best that I can in this moment, am I doing him justice? And thirdly, a sincere faith. There are so many charlatans, not just in our day, but throughout church history. People who want power, people who want to make merchandise of the people of God, right? In our modern day, of course, the easy target is the word of faith preacher that tells you, you know, if you really want to be spiritual, you really want to be holy, you really want God's best for you. What you need to do right now is you need to sow your seed. And the way you sow your seed of faith is by dropping $100 in that box in the back. And as you drop that $100 back in the back, I can confidently tell you that you will receive a hundredfold blessing from God. Your thousand dollars is on the way. I could do that. But that's not sincere faith. You see, that faith is motivated by greed. It's motivated by something that we will find at the end of this first book of Timothy is the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And it's not a sincere faith. A sincere faith is when I really believe the things that I'm telling you. I really believe what this book says. I really believe that God Almighty wants this for you and wants this for me. I truly believe these things. I believe that Jesus Christ came to this earth, lived a perfect life, died for sins, so that if you believe in him, you repent of your sins, you too can have a pure heart, a clear conscience, a sincere faith, and know and know and know and know that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. That's a good hope. It's a hope I have, and it's a hope I want to impart to you out of this aim of love. You see, this is the ministry of the pastor. And all of these things together hopefully inform us that 1 Timothy is an important book to study. But as we go through this, this is the foundation I hope you hear of everything that I'm going to say to you. That the aim of what we get out of this book, no matter how difficult it might be to receive, and some things are going to be tricky, I'm not going to lie. Some things are going to be difficult. But the aim is love. And love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. 
And as we go forward, I pray that all of our faiths would grow, that all of our consciences would become a little more sensitive, and that we would be people who have repenting hearts, pure hearts, quick to hear from the Lord and quick to respond. Amen? Lord, we love you and we praise you for this book that you've given to us that shows us how we should live lives here within the church. And so, Lord, as you've commanded me to be this steward of your word, I pray, Lord, that you would keep me sensitive to your leading, your guiding, that I would be one who's quick to repent, Lord, this good conscience that my faith would be sincere and that ultimately my motive would be to love everybody here so that as they walk out of here, they do know you better and love you more, Jesus, than they did when they walked in. We love you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.